Hi there, and welcome to the Skylight Books author reading series. If you'd like to learn more about us and our many upcoming author events, please visit skylightbooks.com, where you can browse our inventory, buy books, and join our Friends with Benefits Club. You can also follow us on Twitter, Tumblr, and Facebook. To speak to a real live bookseller like me, please call 323-660-1175. Thanks for your support, and enjoy. Skylight is everything that you want your neighborhood bookstore to be. Uh, I think this is the fourth launch I've, I've done here. Um, it's an honor every time to read. You have in the audience a majestic tree, which I have watched grow. I think it was a sapling when I started. <laughs> um, I think launching a book is a little like um, you know winning an award. It feels that way. I, so I'd like to thank the Academy. <laughs> but honestly, I would like to thank my um, uh, colleagues, students, former students uh, from Otis College of Art and Design. Um, no one is here from my publisher, but this has been one of the happiest experiences I've had with Hanover Square Press, HarperCollins, and so um, my editor, Peter Joseph, is really amazing. I see so many friends, um, old friends, new friends, um, and there are a lot of fellow um, writers um, in, the, in the audience, people I admire a good deal, so that means a lot to me that they're here. <clears throat> I think um, every writer is at risk of going a little mad in the attic, and um, so most of all, I'd like to thank my boyfriend, Chris, who uh, day after day uh, brings me out into the sunlight, so thank you. Uh, I'm going to read um, three passages from The Stranger Game, and then I'd love to hear what's on your mind, if anything is on your mind. There's some, also, there's some seats in front if you want to just look straight up. Feel free to move in. <laughs> so this, um, this section doesn't uh, need any introduction because it's the opening. <clears throat> the worst thing about doing readings is having people watch you drink water. <laughs> So I get like a squeeze top so that I'm not, because I've been doing this a long time and I've spilled it on myself. So. <laughs> okay, so this is the opening. The first time I followed anyone was on a Sunday afternoon in late November, the sky still gray with ash some weeks after a wildfire to the north. I had gone out on a hike, hoping to clear my mind by scrambling up the narrow path of a dry canyon, which worked until I walked the down trail back to my car. As I was driving out of the park, I passed a picnic area where there was a party underway, a birthday celebration with a hacked-at pinata twirling off a low branch, smoke rising from blackened grills, balloons tethered to the benches. At the periphery, I noticed a little boy, himself a balloon in a red round jacket and red round pants. He didn't seem to be the center of attention, so I didn't think he was the birthday boy. He must have been about three. He was tossing an inflated ball, also red, back and forth to his parents, or not exactly to his parents. He launched the ball instead toward the road where I'd pulled over and parked. I hadn't planned any of this, but then that was how the game was played, how it began. The first rule, choose your subjects at random. The balloon boy picked up the ball and tried throwing it again, but he couldn't seem to get it to either parent. It kept falling short. Why didn't they stand closer? Why were they making it difficult for him? Was this some kind of test? The boy began flapping his arms, exasperated, until mercifully his mother pulled him aside for a hot dog. The boy's father accepted the, a beer from another man. Trying to persuade the boy to eat was apparently the wrong move because he shook his head from side to side, cranky, right when the afternoon sun both cracked the clouds and began to fade. 
The boy's mother scooped him up in her arms, although it looked like he was getting heavy for her, and carried him to a bright green box of a car parked three spaces in front of mine. Did she notice me? No, why, sh why would she? There was nothing so peculiar about a 40-year-old woman sitting alone in a gray car idling in a city park. Although that afternoon I was full of longing, and who knew what I was capable of doing? The mother fit her boy into a car seat, strapped him in, and brushed his hair off his face. The boy's father had followed him to the car, but didn't get in. The woman turned toward him to give him a quick, meaningful kiss, and I heard the man shout as he walked away that he'd call her later when he got home, which elicited an easy smile from the woman. I revised my story. She was a single mother, right now only dating this man. She'd brought her son to a party the man had said the boy might enjoy. The woman and the man had been seeing each other for six months, and he was the first guy in a long while who she felt was good with her son, better than the boy's actual father. I should have been rooting for them, for their happiness, but I wondered, if the woman and man wound up together permanently, would he be one of those guys who believed their marriage wouldn't be complete until she gave him a child of his own? Would, how would the woman's son handle it? Would the challenge of a new sibling prepare him for all of the other uncertainties ahead, his body changing, the girls or the boys he'd want to take to his own picnics, the inevitable dramas of his own making? Would he continue wearing red jackets with red pants? Would he come into his body as an athlete, or would he excel at piano or math or debate or all of the above? No, something else, but what? These were the questions I was asking while trailing the green car out of the park and east along the boulevard, then south, skirting downtown. Traffic gave me cover, but it also meant that I had to drive aggressively if I didn't want to lose them. There was an unexpected pleasure in trying to remain unobserved while in pursuit. Twenty minutes later, we ended up on the east side of the river, heading into a part of the, si the city I didn't know well, and as traffic thinned, it had to be obvious I was behind them. Did the woman see me in her mirror? Did she call her boyfriend and chatter for the sake of it, keeping him on the line in case she needed to tell him a woman wearing dark glasses was following her home? We were coasting through a newer development, the streets as flat as their map. When the woman turned into a driveway, I continued on and pulled over at the end of the block five houses away. Now I watched them in my side view mirror. The woman helped the boy out the back seat and she, she was trying to gather their things and order him into the house, but he was having none of it, sprinting, sprinting across the yard toward its one leafless tree. Then the boy tripped. He fell first on his knees, then his palms. He wailed. The woman jogged over and knelt down next to him, writing him, shaking her head, neither angry nor concerned. It wasn't a bad fall. She reached her arms around him, and once again she brushed his bangs across his forehead. The boy probably had learned that the longer he wept, the longer his mother would hold him, and so he kept crying. His mother rocked him, and was she smiling? How long would she be able to comfort him like this, her silly boy? I wondered what it was like to be needed in this way, and to know it was a fleeting dependence. The autumn sky turned amber with the last trace of light. Suddenly from the open back door of the woman's car, the red ball fell out. It rolled all the way down the driveway to the street. Neither the woman nor her son appeared to notice. The breeze carried the ball down the grade toward where I was parked. My first instinct was to hop out and retrieve it and bring it back to the boy, but then I would have revealed my position and possibly alarmed the woman if she put together how far I had followed her. Also, I would have broken the second rule of the game, no contact. 
The red ball continued to roll down the middle of the street, pushed on by the evening wood wind. Would the boy ever find it? Would his mother notice it missing? Was it lost for good? I would never know. I would never see them again. The third rule of the game was never follow the same stranger twice. And so I drove away. So is it raining? <laughs> that was eerie. <laughs> um, the, uh, uh, what, we, what happens next in the book is, well, first of all, the, the, we learn that the narrator, whose name is Rebecca, um, has been in an on-off relationship uh, with a man named Ezra for many years, although they've just been friends for the last three. They see each other every couple of weeks um, and uh, are in regular contract, uh, contact. But when Rebecca doesn't hear from Ezra for a month, she gets worried and she goes over to his apartment and finds out from the property manager that he hasn't paid his rent and appears to have disappeared. Um, so they go into Ezra's apartment and they find a printout of an online essay on a table. And the essay, um, which had been posted on a travel site, um, was written by a man who started following people in order to observe them uh, from afar and try to uh, develop or rediscover his sense of empathy. But the essay has gone viral and has turned into something else. So the detective who opens um, a missing persons file is named Detective Martinez. And um, she is looking into Ezra's disappearance. And Rebecca hasn't um, uh, told the detective everything. She hasn't been completely forthright about her relationship um, with Ezra. And this uh, next passage uh, takes place um, two months after Ezra has been gone. For those of you who like to follow along, I'm on page 57. After a month, which meant Ezra had been missing for two, I showed up at the police station unannounced and demanded to see Detective Martinez. She met me at the front desk because she had someone in her office and guided me to a free bench. I haven't heard anything from you in weeks, I said. Rebecca, you haven't taken me seriously this whole time. You've implied more than once that there's something peculiar about my history with Ezra. I don't think I ever said anything like that, Detective Martinez said. I don't think you've been harnessing the full force of the department to find him. People waiting to be called to pay citations and report petty thefts all stared at me. For some reason, this was the moment I noticed that Detective Martinez's earlobes were both multiply pierced, although she wore no jewelry. She leaned toward me and whispered, I think we both know you haven't been completely straight with me. Now, I was the one who didn't blink. For whatever reason, you decided not to tell me what you found when you first went into Ezra's apartment with the property manager, she said. I blinked. I'm guessing the property manager noticed me taking the printout, I said. Look, Detective Martinez said, this stranger game is the bane of my existence. Do you know how many missing persons reports have been filed in the last year alone? Stranger game, I asked. The article, you read it? Yes, but what about it? The fad that came out of it, Detective Martinez said. You mean to say you don't know about that? I shook my head no. That's refreshing, the detective said. I wish more people didn't know about it. But then why did you take the article with you? I'd sensed it was important. I'd want, I wanted to know what Ezra was reading when he vanished. He'd always had a way of being deeply affected by whatever he encountered, be it a book, a, a song, a dog, a tree. He was both more available than I was to be influenced and more readily buffeted. It's been passed around five million times, 10 million times, the detective said. 
I don't think we really know how many times. She described the craze the essay had launched, and I was confused. But the article is about overcoming your alienation, I said. I think most people only read about the other people playing the game, not the original article itself. It's a terrible misinterpretation, then. There is no mention of any kind of game, I said. The writer talks about empathy, but the game isn't about that at all, the detective said. It's about seeing how long you can follow a stranger without getting caught. There are the three rules, because it wouldn't be a game without rules, but it's not a game at all. From where I sit, it's called stalking. Some gossip I'd heard about a friend of a friend now made sense. This person was an ambitious associate at a big law firm, a consummate networker, and meanwhile always planning weekend getaways with her fiance. But some months ago, she had become deeply engaged in an activity that my friend labeled addictive. I assumed it was drugs. Then my friend's friend started showing up late to meetings and went missing for hours, and apparently she lied to her fiance about her whereabouts. The fiance assumed she was hiding an affair. It didn't let up. Eventually the fiance left her and the woman was asked to take a leave from her law firm to sort things out. She'd moved in with her mother, but by all accounts she still went missing for days at a time. When I asked my friend what kind of drugs her friend had gotten into or if it was alcohol, my friend made it clear there weren't substances involved. Her friend had been playing the game and I assumed game was code for gambling or sex. So people lose themselves in this, I said, but do they usually disappear? Eventually they come home, they turn up, Detective Martinez said, said. It's a waste of our resources chasing grown adults who run off one day because they feel like it, but we don't choose who we look for and who we don't. We look for everybody. I very much could see the appeal to Ezra. He craved the open road and he took so much pleasure in meeting strangers. He quizzed taxi drivers and airplane roommates and buskers in the park for their life stories. I separated from my husband last year after 20 years, Detective Martinez said. We met on the force, I still work with him. We get along fine, all things considered. We have joint custody of the dogs. So I understand how things might be between you and Ezra. The concern, the care, it doesn't simply stop. You could have told me about finding the article. I was still very much in love with Ezra, and the detective was probably still very much in, live, in, in love with her soon-to-be ex-husband, and the whole world was full of people very much in love with lost lovers. We sat there a moment longer before the detective stood up to return to whomever was in her office, and I pulled her arm so she sat back down. I wanted to ask, have you ever watched someone close to you slip away? You see it happening, but there's nothing you can do about it. Has that happened to you? Instead, I said, he was always a little adrift. It was charming for a while, and then it was exhausting. I didn't take care of him. I started sobbing in my hands, and the detective's whole posture changed. She slumped back in the bench a bit. When I looked up, I noticed everyone in the room was doing his or her best to look away. I live around the corner from here, the detective said. I made chicken soup last night. Come home with me now. I'll give you some homemade soup. You'll feel better. Let me get rid of the people in my office, then we'll get you some soup. This sounds unorthodox, I said. Nobody follows the rules all of the time, the detective said. Her house was a clabbered cottage painted mint green, the trim also green but darker. Green was clearly Detective Martinez's favorite color because her sunlit cozy kitchen with its shelves of cookbooks and pots hanging over the range was yet another soft green. I, I did feel calmer sipping warm soup on a warm day. There was a collection of frogs on the windowsill, some crystal, some plastic. Two large dogs were lolling in the sun in the backyard. 
I knew that Detective Martinez didn't want to tell me that after two months, she was pretty sure Ezra wouldn't turn up. She wasn't exactly my new friend, but she knew that I needed a new friend. Can I ask you something, Detective Martinez said, and I ask this because I'm trying to help. You admitted to finding the article, great. Is there anything else maybe that you haven't told me? Nothing, I said a little too quickly. The detective didn't blink. Now you know everything, I said. Okay, right, no, honestly, you do. All right then, I believe you. Let me put it this way, Rebecca. Let's say hypothetically that Ezra has moved on. I haven't uh, been to the studio today, I said. I really should go. Let's just say he's moved on. You two haven't been together a while now. Let's just say he disappeared because he wanted a new life and this was the only way he knew how to find it. So, what about you? What are you going to do now for yourself? I wasn't going to give the detective what she wanted. I thanked her for her sympathy and sympathy, told her to let me know if she learned anything new, and I left. So, water. Uh, Rebecca starts following people, and um, that she—that's the first passage I read, and then she follows. Um, two men in a museum, and uh, this passage follows the one I was just reading with Detective Martinez. <clears throat> a memory now, a winter night, Ezra and I tucked into opposite corners of the couch. I might have been half reading a novel, half staring out at the city, considering getting into bed, but Ezra would be up another hour or longer. He was wide awake elsewhere, studying the maps of a country thousands of miles away. He brought home a travel guide from the bookstore, one from the series he liked that came packed with extra history and excerpts by literary heroes juxtaposed with the usual photos of spires and spice markets. We hadn't necessarily agreed this was where we'd go the following summer, but in his mind, we were on our way and the planning fell to him. Ezra took such pleasure in constructing the perfect day. We'd follow the path he'd mark out for us from the chapel with the restored frescoes to the house where a poet wrote his odes and died young, across stone bridges, through a cluttered cemetery, coiling up narrow streets until we reached the ledge of a park overlooking the jeweled city, the city a puzzle we'd solved together. Then Ezra would withdraw a bottle of wine from his backpack, a wedge of cheese, bread, fruit, a sleight of hand because I never noticed him packing a picnic or I chose not to keep track of what he, was uh, what he was doing because I wanted to be surprised. These were days of lidless pleasure. My only dread would be the return flight, the arrival home, Ezra's lassitude when we had to fall back into our regular routines. In later years, when he seemed down to me, I'd ask him where we were going next to cheer him up and this worked for a time. He'd come home with a new travel guide, he'd unfold new maps, it worked, and then it didn't work so much. Nothing did. Another memory, even earlier, from around the time Ezra moved out west to be with me. On Sunday afternoons, post-nap, pre-dinner, he would announce we were going on a drive. A drive where, I'd ask. Oh, nowhere in particular, he'd say. The idea was we'd venture out, allow ourselves to get lost, then figure out how to get back without consulting a map. I myself didn't know the neighborhoods well because I'd been working long hours and hadn't had time to explore. Let's see what we can discover, Ezra said, and usually he would steer us up into the foothills and we'd follow the haunches and hollows of that terrain until we wound down to the beach. Sometimes we got out and walked on the windy bluff at dusk. Sometimes we sat in the car parked on the side of the coast road and made out like teenagers. Dusk was Ezra's favorite time of day and mine too. It was impossible not to believe in your eventual prosperity 
when the sun melted into the Pacific distance and the night was still unwritten. Eventually, there were more and more Sundays when I needed to catch up on work and begged out of the drive, and Ezra didn't pout about it. He went alone. When he came home, however, he would pull me from my desk to the couch to cuddle with him. Be with me now, he'd say, and he was cute about it, and of course I gave in. I should have gone on the drives, though. Even then, I could see this, and I don't know why I didn't. I thought the stranger game might be akin to getting lost in a landscape you didn't know and then finding your way back from its literal edge, that this was the appeal to Ezra, except he hadn't come back from this drive, had he? Be with me now. I wanted to understand what he was experiencing. I was convinced he'd become a player, and I admit it made no sense, but I thought the only way to find him was to figure out where the game might lead. Days after following the two men at the museum, I was looking for new clothes to wear for, a client, for client presentations, and I ended up randomly tracking a woman my age into the men's section of a department store. She was checking out sweaters. For whom? A friend? A boyfriend? Her husband? Her ex-husband? I watched her set aside several sweaters, all of them gray. Then she stood in front of the a full-length mirror and tried on each one. Were they for her? Or was it indeed a holiday gift, but a major consideration was how it would fit her when she borrowed it on cool mornings after she'd spent the night. She looked ridiculous, apparently. She put on a cardigan that looked more like a robe on her. The charcoal turtleneck she ended up purchasing became a mini dress, but she didn't care. She'd be closer to him when she wore it. Early the following morning, instead of driving to the gym, I followed a guy delivering newspapers. He had terrible aim. He slung half the papers at garage doors and light posts and had to hop out of his car to, re to redirect the papers to stoops and gates. This was his third job. He was trying to pick up extra cash to support the little girl in the back seat, belted in next to the steep pile of newsprint. He wanted her to be, be able to take piano lessons. The more papers he delivered, the lower the pile next to his daughter, and the better her view of a neighborhood miles away from the one where they lived. Later that afternoon, I followed a father into a diner, a father and his son. The kid wore glasses too big for his face and read a paperback while walking. He attacked a shared Sunday with less zeal than his father. He wanted to be reading. He wanted to be in his bedroom with the door shut. The longer I watched them from across the diner, the more vivid everything became. The red of the booth glowed in a ruby wash. The boy's lenses were as clear as new window glass. In the man's face, the first striations of age appeared right as I stared at him, like cracks emerging in burning firewood. Every edge became sharper, and maybe it was the time of year, the earlier sunsets, the angled light, or I was in the habit of observing others with greater care. I'm trying to define a state of hyper-alertness. It was tonic. I wanted to prolong it. I ended up out at the beach. From the bluff, I watched a photographer shoot a woman in a white dress, her dress and the filter an assistant held, like the twin sails of a masted boat, full and bright. I could see the many silver rings on the photographer's fingers as he twisted the lens back and forth. I could see the model's eyes, or at least I convinced myself I could, bluer than the darkening ocean. I knew what the photographer was thinking. Almost, almost, this way, keep going, almost. I knew what the model was thinking. I can give him a little more, I can seduce him, I can see through him, I have him now. One day, I broke the second rule. I was on my way to work. A tall kid, college-aged, was walking along a busy road. He was wearing a full backpack. 
and he had a milky cat on a leash perched atop his shoulders and the pack. The kid hopped across one side of the road to the center island where people often asked for money, which was what he began doing. He looked so tired to me when I drove past without stopping, but not without hope. With my rearview mirror, I watched him reach over his shoulder to pet the cat. I wanted to know how he'd ended up here. He was estranged from his family. He'd lost his job. He'd been kicked out of a shelter because they wouldn't let him keep the cat. He was mentally unstable. He'd simply had some bad luck. But I didn't want to fall back to this on the same old, same old speculation to make up my story about him, not this kid. I wanted to know who he really was. I circled back around to make another pass, except this time I pulled to the side of the road, waited out the traffic, and jogged across to the island. Hi, I said. He seemed surprised someone would join him. Was I going to encroach his turf? Would I ask for money too? I held out a $20 bill and said, for you. He took the money with little eye contact and said, thank you so much, thank you, God bless. I stood there, stupid with too many thoughts. Do you have a place to go tonight? It will be cold. Can you use that money to get something to eat? Do you need me to care for your cat while you find work? Useless sentiments, probably. Would you like to pet her, the kid asked. He stooped a bit so I could reach the perfectly balanced cat. Her name is beautiful, he said. She is, I said, and stroked her head and back, so soft. Don't cry, he said. Was I crying? Watch yourself crossing that traffic, he said when I turned away. I will, I said. You watch yourself, too. Beautiful will take care of me, he said. I broke the third rule and drove back to the same spot the next day, but didn't see the tall kid and his cat. No luck the day after that. I never saw him again. I suppose he was following the rules on my behalf. Maybe this wasn't a game I should play at all. I didn't have the temperament. One was supposed to connect but not get involved, but why not get involved? If the link to a stranger was entirely internal, only one way, how could it be meaningful? Was it really any connection at all? Thanks. Thank you for listening. Um, and are there any questions or things you want to talk about? It seems like it stopped raining. Well, it's interesting, kind of, sort of, but not really. So um, in, in Sunset Junction, um, I sort of saw someone at uh, Tacos Delta and uh, just walked down the block a little bit, not very far. It was a woman, and it's actually something like that is in the book a little bit. Um, but I didn't really um, play the game. However, long after the book um, was uh, uh, done, edited this, this summer when I was vacationing in uh, Madrid with Chris, and Chris was taking a, a nap back at the hotel, I just went on a walk and sort of decided to randomly follow someone, which I did <laughs> for, you know, uh, in, in Madrid, up past the Prado and into Recoleta and just uh, um, not very far, but it was interesting and something kind of happened. It was weird. You know, this guy was on the phone, he was carrying a shopping bag, and then he met someone outside of the, um, I think it's the National Library, and this other guy came up and double kissed him and took the bag and walked away, and the guy went into work. So I was like, whoa. And I felt really weird. It felt really, really strange to do it. And so I guess it can be done, but the book doesn't exactly promote that. So <laughs> I wouldn't recommend it.
So it was re research after the fact. But actually, um, when I was, one of the ways the idea for the book came to me was I was stuck in traffic on the 110 South. And I was thinking about how they're just, we're separated by glass from all these people. And of course, everybody does this. They make up stories about whoever they see. And so that I was starting to think, oh, well, you know, I could just follow this car. And then the idea of, of following is on social media. I sort of thought, well, what if you made it actual? What if people really were following each other? Yeah. So that was my, that's where it came from. But I didn't stalk. <laughs> Um, this is really only the second time that, that that's happened. So usually, you know, I think you probably experienced this yourself where it's like a collage of thoughts and it's this setting and this relationship and these ideas and you sort of develop something out of that, aren't really sure where it's going and then it kind of gives a shape, takes over. Um, with, this, with this and the, the, the long reign, something similar happened. Um, I really had the concept and then it was like, okay, who do I want to populate the book? Um, originally, I, I sort of came up with characters who seemed very much like the characters in Silver Lake, um, the, my, my previous book, and so I decided, no, that's not what I want to do, and, and then I figured out who I wanted to write about, what kind of relationship, and it came together that way. But the concept was first, and that's, that's, that's pretty unusual. But it's pretty nifty when it happens, because it gives you this kind of controlling idea, and then other things you want to write about sort of have a place to go. So I, I, I kind of hope it happens. I mean, well, it has happened again, but I hope it happens again and again. <laughs> I would give that gift to every writer. <laughs> Hi, David. You're hiding. That's a great question. Um, the, because the, the uh, topography is Los Angeles. Um, it's, it could be set in Los Angeles. It's, it's not, no, nothing is named, no part of town is named. There's some things that are a little fudged. There's a um, Runyon Canyon and Griffith Park are kind of merged in a way in, in, a, in one place. Um, and I, I like the idea of trying to create um, an abstract place in a place that I, that I knew, just sort of be disorienting and, and defamiliarizing. And um, the, I, a writer I like who, who does this in a way is Jose Saramago, who say in something like blindness will have you know, this state that's very much an Iberian state, but then something happens and you stop, you can, you can um, imprint your, your own place on that place as well as seeing as being particular. So that's, that was kind of the strategy there and it's, it's fun to do. I, um, I like books that can do that, that can seem familiar. And when um, I was uh, talking to a group of, of, of people, the book is in um, development at FX to be a television series. And um, when I was um, talking to some executives there, they each, someone thought it was the Bay Area Someone thought it was LA or maybe San Diego. They seemed to be California. There was enough about the climate that suggested that. Um, but I've also heard someone think it was uh, Denver, which seems really 
strange to me. So, I, but I, I appreciate that. I, I don't mean to be coy, but it's something, it's a way of uh, creating a kind of distance. And, and in terms of it being timeless, um, I think there are enough you know, things like phones in people's pockets and things like that that make it clear it's contemporary, but I also tried to take out markers that made it, you know, 2017, 18, as opposed to um, any, any particular time, just to, to also for that, that distancing. That's a good question too. I, I um, so the Silver Lake has two men who are in a relationship, and it's third person, and and so a lot. Honestly, maybe it's not a very smart sounding answer, but often I just try to do something that's not the exact opposite of what I've just done to have a singular narrator, first person, um, and um, I I was I was intrigued about so the idea of what it would mean for a woman to be following people and what her vulnerability might be. So that became something that once I made that choice, I wanted to uh, explore and amplify. I don't know if that succeeds, but it was very much on my mind because um, I don't think it's the same thing. I don't think everybody following somebody is the same. People in different situations and different urban settings are going to be different. So that, that vulnerability um, was of interest. Um, and I don't know, I just felt like being in drag and it was kind of fun, you know, to do that. I've never, I've written third person from women's points of view, but never first person. So that's fun. I'd do that again, too. <laughs> Well, so the, that's the, the, the person who writes the article is trying to do that. But actually, the, the, the game is distorted and perverted, and so it has nothing to do really with the article. So people playing the game aren't interested in that at all. They're interested in all kinds of things. And you know, as soon as there are rules, rules are broken, and they start doing, things start happening. Um, but um, I, I, I was interested in how you can basically have a Facebook friend and spy on them and go to their wedding with them and never really have talked to them in real life. And how much information we have about people and what are we, what are we doing and what do we do when we see strangers? And it's like walking past the same homeless people day after day and what do we, we project a story? Do we actually interact? So what, what um, kind of, over time, what sort of anime does that produce? Um, that's, that's what I was interested in there. Um, but I, the, the author of the article sort of feels very alienated and discovers a kind of connection through this process. So he recommends people do it. They just take it the wrong way. Yeah, which I didn't at first, and I didn't understand why people were like photographing the sides of buildings for different things. Um, and and I, um, it's it's analogous, so it's not at, there is so I deliberately stripped social media out of the um, the book um, when they're looking for Ezra, they're following protocols, but they're not using social media to see. Um, so everything else is 
mentioned in terms of missing person databases and things like that, but police use social media now. So that's not there at all. Um, and um, I, I think it's, um, it, it's interesting to have had to use social media to promote the book. Like I feel hypocritical. <laughs> you know, I'm like, publisher asked me to tweet, so je tweet. <laughs> but um, you know, it's it, 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 that, that distance, that alienation, I think is um, something social media produces. It connects us and it alienates us. Yes, Michael. So that, that's, that's interesting. One choice I made was never to, to just sort of slip into what people were thinking, the story. So it's never, there's never the, the first person, I looked at him and thought this. It's simply you go into the imagining just to, to, to uh, what you think is going on and making up the, the stories. Um, and then maybe revising them as you get signals to do something else. And I thought actually when I was writing the book that the, this, this kind of action would be just in the first part of the book, but it's actually throughout. So there's, con there's always this sense of playing and following and making up stories and writing stories about people. And um, I tried to never repeat myself in terms of the kind of story. So um, they all change, but I also, um, you know, my, my writing students know that I say if you have a fire in every chapter, they, they should probably be bigger and bigger fires in subsequent chapters, um, the fires get bigger. Um, maybe not always, but usually. And um, so I tried to make the, the stories and the engagement with the stories kind of expand a bit and get a little more problematic, a little more dangerous. Um, I don't know if that's answering your, your, your question, but I, I do think uh, it's interesting to write uh, a novel that has so many little fragments that have nothing to do with actually moving the plot forward. It's a bit of a challenge. I, I thought it was really creepy when I was writing. <laughs> I was like, you know, sort of creeping myself out a tad. Um, I don't know if you thought that first scene was creepy, but I, reading it, I'm sort of like, this is weird, you know. Um, and um, I, I kind of went with that. I just tried to engage with the, like at a certain point, people just don't question what they're doing. They just do this. They don't stop and think that it's like really strange. So um, I also, um, the book is being um, sold as a, thriller, which is great um, because it reaches an interesting audience. I didn't set out to write a thriller. 
it just, I wanted to write, I just think of myself as writing literary fiction that's character driven, but I like plot. And so the plot kind of uh, has an engine to it. And I got into that, I like that. I had a, I had a, um, I often have a, an idea of a, a sort of structural formula that sometimes I stick with, sometimes I don't, just to get me through um, a first draft. And in this one, there's basically a plot twist a certain distance into the book. And then the next major twist happens half that distance. And the next one after that is half that distance. And so it, I, at some point, it's not just twist, twist, but that's, that's kind of what I, I sort of marked out as what I wanted to do in the outline. And that way, I kind of felt like there would be an acceleration. So that actually stuck in this book, more, I think more or less. Um, it's not always the case that those sorts of structures really last. Totally, yeah. <laughs> I mean, I, yeah, I mean, it, there might be someone watching you right now. <laughs> yeah, I think that, that um, I mean, I, I, I'm always like, ah, oh, it's fiction, it's a book, but um, you, in, in the, um, something, there is a twist where someone realizes, that where Rebecca realizes somebody has been following her for a while, and um, that, uh, I wanted that sort of sense of uh, just, um, imagining that there was this infinite regression of possible people following her. I really like the film Her. I don't know if you've seen Her. And in, in, in Her, um, there's uh, a moment when it's sort of like um, you see, you know, Joaquin Phoenix is talking and then you sort of pull back and you see a couple other people are talking and at some point in the film you just realize everybody is engaged in this. It's just viral. It's, it's kind of explosive. And I wanted that sort of effect about realizing, well, if somebody, if I'm following somebody, and it turns out somebody was following me, where does it stop and where does it begin? It's sort of infinite. So yeah, I was definitely hoping that would be the effect. Any other questions? I think that's good. Thanks everyone for coming. You've been listening to the Skylight Books author reading series. Don't forget, you can listen to this and all of our other great podcasts at skylightbooks.com. Thanks again for stopping by, and we hope to see you soon.